Help us choose which books to read next on Send Me to Sleep. You can vote using the link in the episode notes. Thanks, everyone. Welcome to Send Me to Sleep, the place to find a good night's rest. My name's Andrew, and I'm so pleased you've joined me tonight and taken this time for yourself to ensure you get a peaceful night's sleep. Tonight, I'll be reading The Mysterious Affair at Styles by Agatha Christie, Part 2. In the last chapter, Captain Hastings visited Styles Court and observed the tension between Miss Howard and Alfred Inglethorpe while receiving a warning to be cautious of the people at Styles. In this chapter, Poirot is called to Styles Court after an unexpected incident. This story contains themes that some listeners may find unsettling, but slight edits have been made to make it more suitable for sleep. If you haven't already, find a nice place to get cozy. Take a deep, relaxing breath and settle your body in whatever way feels most comfortable. Now all you'll need to do is follow the sound of my voice as we settle in for a peaceful night's sleep. Chapter 2 The 16th and 17th of July I had arrived at Styles Court on the 5th of July. I come now to the events of the 16th and 17th of that month. For the convenience of the reader, I will recapitulate the incidents of those days in as exact a manner as possible. They were elicited subsequently at the trial by a process of long and tedious cross-examinations. I received a letter from Evelyn Howard a couple of days after her departure, telling me that she was working as a nurse at the big hospital in Midlingham, a manufacturing town some fifteen miles away and begging me to let her know if Mrs. Inglethorpe should show any wish to be reconciled. The only fly in the ointment of my peaceful days was Mrs. Cavendish's extraordinary and, for my part, unaccountable preference for the society of Dr. Bowerstein. What she saw in the man I cannot imagine but she was always asking him up to the house, and often went off for long expeditions with him. I must confess that I was quite unable to see his attraction. The 16th of July fell on a Monday. It was a day of turmoil. The famous bazaar had taken place on Saturday, and an entertainment in connection with the same charity at which Mrs. Inglethorpe was to recite a war poem 
was to be held that night. We were all busy during the morning, arranging and decorating the hall in the village where it was to take place. We had a late luncheon and spent the afternoon resting in the garden. I noticed that John's manner was somewhat unusual. He seemed very excited and restless. After tea, Mrs. Inglethorpe went to lie down to rest before her efforts in the evening, and I challenged Mary Cavendish to a single at tennis. About a quarter to seven, Mrs. Inglethorpe called us that we should be late, as supper was early that night. We had rather a scramble to get ready in time, and before the meal was over, the motor was waiting at the door. The entertainment was a great success, Mrs. Inglethorpe's recitation receiving tremendous applause. There were also some tableaux in which Cynthia took part. She did not return with us, having been asked to a supper party and to remain the night with some friends who had been acting with her in the tableau. The following morning, Mrs. Inglethorpe stayed in bed to breakfast, as she was rather overtired, but she appeared in her briskest mood about 12.30 and swept Lawrence and myself off to a luncheon party. Such a charming invitation from Mrs. Rolston, Lady Tadminster's sister, you know. The Rolstons came over with the Conqueror, one of our oldest families. Mary had excused herself on the plea of an engagement with Dr. Bowerstein. We had a pleasant luncheon, and as we drove away, Lawrence suggested that we should return by Tadminster, which was barely a mile out of our way, and pay a visit to Cynthia in her dispensary. Mrs. Inglethorpe replied that this was an excellent idea, but as she had several letters to write, she would drop us there, and we could come back with Cynthia in a pony trap. We were detained under suspicion by the hospital porter until Cynthia appeared to vouch for us, looking very cool and sweet in her long white overall. She took us up to her sanctum and introduced us to her fellow dispensers, a rather awe-inspiring individual whom Cynthia cheerily addressed as Nibs. What a lot of bottles, I exclaimed as my eyes travelled round the small room. Do you really know what's in them all? Say something original, groaned Cynthia. Every single person who comes up here says that. We're really thinking of bestowing a prize on the first individual who does not say, What a lot of bottles. And I know the next thing you're going to say is, How many people have you poisoned? I pleaded guilty with a laugh. 
If you people only knew how fatally easy it is to poison someone by mistake, you wouldn't joke about it. Come on, let's have tea. We've got all sorts of secret stores in that cupboard. No, Lawrence, that's the poison cupboard. The big cupboard's right there. We had a very cheery tea and assisted Cynthia to wash up afterwards. We had just put away the last teaspoon when a knock came at the door. The countenance of Cynthia and Nibs were suddenly petrified into a stern and forbidding expression. Come in, said Cynthia in a sharp, professional tone. A young and rather scared-looking nurse appeared with a bottle she proffered to Nibs, who waved her towards Cynthia with the somewhat enigmatical remark, I'm not really here today. Cynthia took the bottle and examined it with the severity of a judge. This should have been sent up this morning. Sister is very sorry. She forgot. Sister should read the rules outside the door. I gathered from the little nurse's expression that there was not the least likelihood of her having the hardihood to retail this message to the dreaded sister. So now it can't be done till tomorrow, finished Cynthia. Don't you think you could possibly let us have it tonight? Well, said Cynthia, graciously, we are very busy, but if we have time, it shall be done. The little nurse withdrew, and Cynthia promptly took a jar from the shelf, refilled the bottle, and placed it on the table outside the door. I laughed. Discipline must be maintained. Exactly. Come out on our little balcony. You can see all the outside wards there. I followed Cynthia and her friend, and they pointed out the different wards to me. Lawrence remained behind, but after a few moments, Cynthia called to him over her shoulder to come and join us. Then she looked at her watch. Nothing more to do, Nibs? No. Alright, then we can lock up and go. I had seen Lawrence in quite a different light that afternoon. Compared to John, he was an astonishingly difficult person to get to know. He was the opposite of his brother in almost every respect, being unusually shy and reserved. Yet, he had a certain charm of manner, and I fancied that, if one really knew him well, one could have a deep affection for him. I had always fancied that his manner to Cynthia was rather constrained, and that she, on her side, was inclined to be shy of him. But they were both joyous enough this afternoon, and chatted together like a couple of children. As we drove through the village, 
I remembered that I wanted some stamps, so accordingly we pulled up at the post office. As I came out again, I canoed into a little man who was just entering. I drew aside and apologized, when suddenly, with a loud exclamation, he clasped me in his arms and kissed me warmly. Mon ami Hastings, he cried. It is indeed mon ami Hastings. Poirot, I exclaimed. I turned to the pony trap. This is a very pleasant meeting for me, Miss Cynthia. This is my old friend, Monsieur Poirot, whom I've not seen for years. Oh, we know Monsieur Poirot, said Cynthia happily, but I had no idea he was a friend of yours. Yes, indeed, said Poirot seriously. I know Mademoiselle Cynthia. It is by the charity of that good Mrs. Inglesorpe that I am here. Then, as I looked at him inquiringly, Yes, my friend, she had kindly extended hospitality to seven of my country people, who, alas, are refugees from their native land. We Belgians will always remember her with gratitude. Poirot was an extraordinary-looking little man. He was hardly more than five feet four inches, but carried himself with great dignity. His head was exactly the shape of an egg, and he always perched it a little on one side. His moustache was very stiff and military. The neatness of his attire was almost incredible. I believe a speck of dust would have caused him more pain than a bullet wound. Yet this quaint, dandified little man, who, I was sorry to see, now limped badly, had been in his time one of the most celebrated members of the Belgian police. As a detective, his flair had been extraordinary, and he had achieved triumphs by unravelling some of the most baffling cases of the day. He pointed out to me the little house inhabited by him and his fellow Belgians, and I promised to go and see him at an early date. Then he raised his hat with a flourish to Cynthia and drove away. He's a dear little man, said Cynthia. I'd no idea you knew him. You've been entertaining a celebrity unawares, I replied. And, for the rest of the way home, I recited to them the various exploits and triumphs of Hercule Poirot. We arrived back in a very cheerful mood. As we entered the hall, Mrs. Ingledorp came out of her boudoir. She looked flushed and upset. Oh, it's you, she said. Is there anything the matter, Aunt Emily? asked Cynthia. Certainly not, said Miss Inglethorpe, 
sharply. What should there be? Then, catching sight of Dorcas, the parlour maid, going into the dining room, she called to her to bring some stamps into the boudoir. Yes, madame, the old servant hesitated, then added diffidently. Don't you think, madame, you'd better get to bed? You're looking very tired. Perhaps you're right, Dorcas. Yes. No, not now. I've some letters I must finish by post time. Have you lighted the fire in my room, as I told you? Yes, madame. Then I'll go to bed directly after supper. She went into the boudoir again, and Cynthia stared after her. Goodness gracious, I wonder what's up, she said to Lawrence. He did not seem to have heard her, for without a word, he turned on his heels and went out of the house. I suggested a quick game of tennis before supper, and, Cynthia agreeing, I ran upstairs to fetch my racket. Mrs. Cavendish was coming down the stairs. It may have been my fancy, but she, too, was looking odd and disturbed. Had a good walk with Dr. Bowerstein, I asked, trying to appear as indifferent as I could. I didn't go, she replied abruptly. Where is Miss Inglethorpe? In the boudoir. Her hand clenched itself on the banister, then she seemed to nerve herself for some encounter and went rapidly past me down the stairs across the hall to the boudoir, the door of which she shut behind her. As I ran out to the tennis court a few moments later, I had to pass the open boudoir window and was unable to help overhearing the following scrap of dialogue. Miss Cavendish was saying in the voice of a woman, desperately controlling herself, Then you won't show it to me. To which Mrs. Inglethorpe replied, My dear Mary, it has nothing to do with that matter. Then show me. I tell you it is not what you imagine. It does not concern you in the least. To which Mary Cavendish replied with a rising bitterness. Of course, I might have known you would shield him. Cynthia was waiting for me and greeted me eagerly with, I say, there's been the most awful row. I've got it all out of Dorcas. What kind of row? Between Aunt Emily and him. I do hope she's found him out at last. Was Dorcas there then? Of course not. She happened to be near the door. It was a real old bust up. I do wish I knew what it was all about. I thought of Mrs. Rakes's face 
and Evelyn Howard's warnings, but wisely decided to hold my peace while Cynthia exhausted every possible hypothesis and cheerfully hoped Aunt Emily will send him away and will never speak to him again. I was anxious to get hold of John, but he was nowhere to be seen. Evidently something very momentous had occurred that afternoon. I tried to forget the few words I had overheard, but do what I would, I could not dismay them altogether from my mind. What was Mary Cavendish's concern in the matter? Mr. Inglethorpe was in the drawing room when I came down to supper. His face was impassive as ever, and the strange unreality of the man struck me afresh. Mrs. Inglethorpe came down at last. She still looked agitated, and during the meal there was a somewhat constrained silence. Inglethorpe was unusually quiet. As a result, he surrounded his wife with little attentions, placing a cushion at her back, and altogether playing the part of the devoted husband. Immediately after supper, Mrs. Inglethorpe retired to her boudoir again. Send my coffee in here, Mary, she called. I've just five minutes to catch the post. Cynthia and I went and sat by the open window in the drawing room. Mary Cavendish brought our coffee to us. She seemed excited. Do you young people want lights, or do you enjoy the twilight? She asked. Will you take Mrs. Inglethorpe her coffee, Cynthia? I will pour it out. Do not trouble, Mary, said Inglethorpe. I will take it to Emily. He poured it out and went out of the room, carrying it carefully. Lawrence followed him, and Mrs. Cavendish sat down by us. We three sat in silence for some time. It was a glorious night, hot and still. Mrs. Cavendish fanned herself gently with a palm leaf. It's almost too hot, she murmured. We shall have a thunderstorm. Alas, that these harmonious moments can never endure. My paradise was rudely shattered by the sound of a well-known and heartily disliked voice in the hall. Dr. Ballastein, exclaimed Cynthia, what a funny time to come. I glanced jealously at Mary Cavendish, but she seemed quite undisturbed. The delicate pallor of her cheeks did not vary. In a few moments, Alfred Inglethorpe had ushered the doctor in, the latter laughing and protesting that he was not in a fit state for a drawing room. In truth, he presented a sorry spectacle, 
being literally plastered with mud. What have you been doing, doctor? cried Mary Cavendish. I must make my apologies, said the doctor. I did not really mean to come in, but Mr. Inglethorpe insisted. Well, Bursting, you are in a plight, said John, strolling in from the hall. Have some coffee and tell us what you've been up to. Thank you, I will. He laughed rather ruefully as he described how he had discovered a very rare species of fern in an inaccessible place, and in his efforts to obtain it, had lost his footing and slipped ignominiously into a neighbouring pond. The sun soon dried me off, he added, but I'm afraid my appearance is very disreputable. At this juncture, Mrs. Inglethorpe called to Cynthia from the hall, and the girl ran out. Just carry up my dispatch case, will you, dear? I'm going to bed. The door into the hall was a wide one. I had arisen when Cynthia did. John was close by me. There were therefore three witnesses who could swear that Mrs. Inglethorpe was carrying her coffee, as yet untasted, in her hand. My evening was utterly and entirely spoilt by the presence of Dr. Bowerstein. It seemed to me the man would never go. He rose at last, however, and I breathed a sigh of relief. I'll walk down to the village with you, said Mr. Inglethorpe. I must see our agent over those estate accounts. He turned to John. No one needs it up. I will take the latchkey. Chapter 3 The Night of the Tragedy To make this part of my story clear, I append the following plan of the first floor of styles. The servants' rooms are reached through the door B. They have no communication with the right wing. They have no communication with the right wing, where the Inglethorpe's rooms were situated. It seemed to be the middle of the night when I was awakened by Lawrence Cavendish. He had a candle in his hand, and the agitation of his face told me at once that something was seriously wrong. What's the matter? I asked, sitting up in bed and trying to collect my scattered thoughts. We are afraid my mother is very ill. She seems to be having some kind of fit. Unfortunately, she has locked herself in. I'll come at once. I sprang out of bed and, pulling on a dressing gown, followed Lawrence along the passage and the gallery to the right wing of the house. John Cavendish joined us, and one or two of the servants were standing round in a state of awe-stricken excitement. Lawrence turned to his brother. 
What do you think we had better do? Never, I thought, had his indecision of character been more apparent. John rattled the handle of Mrs. Inglethorpe's door, but with no effect. It was obviously locked or bolted on the inside. The whole household was aroused by now. The most alarming sounds were audible from the interior of the room. Clearly something must be done. Try going through Mr. Inglethorpe's room, sir, cried Dorcas. Oh, the poor mistress. Suddenly, I realized that Alfred Inglethorpe was not with us, that he alone had given no sign of his presence. John opened the door of his room. It was pitch dark, but Lawrence was following with the candle, and by its feeble light we saw that the bed had not been slept in, and that there was no sign of the room having been occupied. We went straight to the connecting door. That, too, was locked or bolted on the inside. What was to be done? Oh dear sir, cried Dorcas, wringing her hands. Whatever shall we do? We must try and break the door in, I suppose. It'll be a tough job though. Here, let one of the maids go down and wake Bailey and tell him to go for Dr. Wilkins at once. Now then, we'll have a try at the door. Half a moment though. Isn't there a door into Miss Cynthia's room? Yes, sir, but that's bolted too. It's never been undone. Well, we might just see. He ran rapidly down the corridor to Cynthia's room. Mary Cavendish was there, shaking the girl, who must have been an unusually sound sleeper, and trying to wake her. In a moment or two, he was back. No good. That's bolted too. We must break in the door. I think this one is a shade less solid than the one in the passage. We strained and heaved together. The framework of the door was solid, and for a long time it resisted our efforts. But at last we felt it give beneath our weight. And finally, with a resounding crash, it was burst open. We stumbled in together, Lawrence still holding his candle. Mrs. Inglethorpe was lying on the bed, her whole form agitated by convulsions, in one of which she must have overturned the table beside her. As we entered, however, her limbs relaxed she fell back upon the pillow. John strode across the room and lit the gas. Turning to Annie, one of the housemaids, he sent her downstairs to the dining room for brandy. Then he went across to his mother whilst I unbolted the door that gave on the corridor. I turned to Lawrence 
to suggest that I had better leave them now that there was no further need of my services, but the words were frozen on my lips. Never have I seen such a ghastly look on any man's face. He was white as chalk. The candle he held in his shaking hand was sputtering onto the carpet, and his eyes, petrified with terror or some such kindred emotion, stared fixedly over my head at a point on the further wall. It was as though he had seen something that turned him to stone. I instinctively followed the direction of his eyes, and I could see nothing unusual. The still feebly flicking ashes in the grate, and the row of prim ornaments on the mantelpiece were surely harmless enough. The abruptness of Mrs. Inglethorpe's convulsions seemed to be surpassing. She was able to speak in short gasps. Better now, very sudden. Stupid of me to lock myself in. A shadow fell on the bed, and, looking up, I saw Mary Cavendish standing near the door with her arm around Cynthia. She seemed to be supporting the girl, who looked utterly dazed and unlike herself. Her face was heavily flushed, and she yawned repeatedly. Poor Cynthia is quite frightened, said Miss Cavendish in a low, clear voice. She herself, I noticed, was dressed in her white land smock. Then it must be later than I thought. I saw that a faint streak of daylight was showing through the curtains of the window, and that the clock on the mantelpiece pointed to close upon five o'clock. A strangled cry from the bed startled me. A fresh access of pain seized the unfortunate lady. A fresh access of pain seized the unfortunate old lady. Everything was confusion. We thronged round her, powerless to help or alleviate. A final convulsion lifted her from the bed until she appeared to rest upon her head and her heels with her body arched in an extraordinary manner. In vain, Mary and John tried to administer more brandy. The moments flew. Again, the body arched itself in that peculiar fashion. At that moment, Dr. Bowerstein pushed his way authoritatively into the room. For one instant, he stopped dead, staring at the figure on the bed, and... At the same instant, Mrs. Inglethorpe cried out in a strangled voice, her eyes fixed on the doctor. Alfred! Alfred! Then she fell back motionless on the pillows. With a stride, the doctor reached the bed and seizing her arms, worked them energetically, applying what I knew to be artificial respiration. He issued a few short, 
sharp orders to the servants. An imperious wave of his hand drove us all to the door. We watched him, fascinated, though I think we all knew in our hearts that it was too late and that nothing could be done now. I could see by the expression on his face that he himself had little hope. Finally, he abandoned his task, shaking his head gravely. At that moment, we heard footsteps outside, and Dr. Wilkins, Mrs. Inglethorpe's own doctor, a portly, fussy little man, came bustling in. A few words of Dr. Bowerstein explained how he had happened to be passing the lodge gates as the car came out, and had run up to the house as fast as he could, while the car went on to fetch Dr. Wilkins. With a faint gesture of the hand, he indicated the figure on the bed. Very, very sad murmured Dr. Wilkins. Poor dear lady, always did far too much, far too much, against my advice. I warned her, her heart was far from strong. Take it easy, I said to her, take it easy. But no, her zeal for good work was too great. Nature rebelled, Nature rebelled. Dr. Bowerstein, I noticed, was watching the local doctor narrowly. He still kept his eyes fixed on him as he spoke. The convulsions were of a peculiar violence, Dr. Wilkins. I'm sorry you were not here in time to witness them. They were quite tentanic in character. Ah, said Dr. Wilkins, wisely. I should like to speak to you in private, said Dr. Bowerstein. He turned to John. Do you object? Certainly not. We all trooped out into the corridor, leaving the two doctors alone, and I heard the key turn in the lock behind us. We went slowly down the stairs. I was much excited. I have a certain talent for deduction, and Dr. Bowerstein's manner had started a flock of wild surmises in my mind. Mary Cavendish lay her hand upon my arm. What is it? Why did Dr. Bowerstein seem so peculiar? I looked at her. Do you know what I think? What? Listen. I looked round. The others were out of earshot. I lowered my voice to a whisper. I believe she has been poisoned. I'm certain Dr. Bowerstein suspects it. What? She shrank against the wall the pupils of her eyes dilating wildly. Then, with a sudden cry that startled me, she cried out, No, 
No, not that. And breaking from me, fled up the stairs. I followed her, afraid that she was going to faint. I found her leaning against the banisters, deadly pale. She waved me away impatiently. No, no, leave me. I'd rather be alone. Let me just be quiet for a minute or two. Go down to the others. I obeyed her reluctantly. John and Lawrence were in the dining room. I joined them. We were all silent, but I suppose I voiced the thoughts of us all when I at last broke it by saying, Where is Mr. Inglethorpe? John shook his head. He's not in the house. Our eyes met. Where was Alfred Inglethorpe? His absence was strange and inexplicable. I remembered Mrs. Inglethorpe's dying words. What lay beneath them? What more could she have told us if she had had the time? At last, we heard the doctors descending the stairs. Dr. Wilkins was looking important and excited and trying to conceal an inward exultation under a manner of decorous calm. Dr. Bowerstein remained in the background, his grave, bearded face unchanged. Dr. Wilkins was the spokesman for the two. He addressed himself to John. Mr. Cavendish, I should like your consent to a post-mortem... Is that necessary? asked John, gravely. A spasm of pain crossed his face. Absolutely, said Dr. Bowerstein. You mean by that? That neither Dr. Wilkins nor myself could give a death certificate under the circumstances? John bent his head. In that case... I have no alternative but to agree. Thank you, said Dr. Wilkins, briskly. We propose that it should take place tomorrow night, or rather tonight, and he glanced at the daylight. Under the circumstances, I'm afraid an inquest can hardly be avoided. These formalities are necessary but I beg that you won't distress yourself. There was a pause, and then Dr. Bowerstein drew two keys from his pocket and handed them to John. These are the keys of the two rooms. I have locked them, and, in my opinion, they would be better kept locked for the present. The doctor then departed. I had been turning over an idea in my head, and I felt that the moment had now come to broach it. Yet I was little cheery of doing so. John, I knew, had a horror of any kind of publicity, and was an easy-going optimist, who preferred never to meet trouble halfway. 
it might be difficult to convince him of the soundness of my plan. Lawrence, on the other hand, being less conventional and having more imagination, I felt I might count upon as an ally. There was no doubt that the moment had come for me to take the lead. John, I said, I'm going to ask you something. Well, you remember my speaking of my friend, Poirot, the Belgian who is here. He has been a most famous detective. Yes? I want you to let me call him in to investigate this matter. What? Now? Before the post-mortem? Yes. Time is an advantage if... if there has been foul play. Rubbish, cried Lawrence angrily. In my opinion, the whole thing is a mare's nest of bower stains. Wilkins hadn't any idea of such a thing until Bowerstein put it into his head. But like all specialists, Bowerstein's got a bee in his bonnet. Poisons are his hobby, so of course he sees them everywhere. I confess that I was surprised by Lawrence's attitude. He was so seldom vehement about anything. John hesitated. I can't feel as you do, Lawrence, he said at last. I'm inclined to give Hastings a free hand, though I should prefer to wait a bit. We don't want any unnecessary scandal. No, no, I cried eagerly. You need have no fear of that. Poirot is discretion itself. Very well, then. Have it your own way. I leave it in your hands, though, if it is as we suspect, it seems a clear enough case. God forgive me if I am wronging him. I looked at my watch. It was six o'clock. I determined to lose no time. Five minutes delay, however, I allowed myself. I spent it ransacking the library until I discovered a medical book which gave a description of strychnine poisoning. 